And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Code Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan on the Code Street Podcast! Yay! Here we are back, three hours before Curiosity lands on Mars. <laughs> they called it Curiosity? Really? That's the, the I haven't name of the... That's awful! That's like some it's kid's show. It's like some kid's show. I don't know if you've seen it. There's been a viral video up for, I don't know, a month now on YouTube when NASA produced the seven minutes of terror. Um, and, and they're trying to make they're trying to make this little robot Chevrolet or whatever it is look like Mission to Mars, which, by the way, is a movie I watched part of a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it, it just the reason that occurred to me was because we were talking about Mars. We were talking about life on Mars. We were talking about Martian novels and that sort of thing. Yeah. And now here we are. Um, with possibly what should be a very interesting big event, except um, no one seems to care about it. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? I, 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 I confess, I think I might be the world's worst science fiction fan at the moment. And you know why? Because I know I should be thrilled about Mars in general, and I find myself more and more saying, but why do you want to go to somewhere that looks like Arizona and wants to kill you really badly? Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is some in deep, intense science fiction fan fail. You know, it's like if somebody showed up tomorrow with, with the, the, the mythical ticket, right? You know, the, the uh, golden ticket from Charlie yeah. and the Octolet Factory. It was going to get you to Mars, like the one you bought when you were a kid to get to the moon. You should be going, yes, take me away. Instead, you're going, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much fun that's going to be, really. Well, what you're telling me is that you're a bad 1950s science fiction fan or a bad Heinlein science fiction fan or maybe a bad 60s science fiction fan. But the fact is, you know, we have we pretty much decided as a society that, okay, we're not going to go to Mars, so we'll send our automobiles there. Uh, and th that's what they're doing. They're landing a car, and it's going to drive around and take pictures. It'll be wonderful pictures, and we'll find out all kinds of things we haven't. But... An, an 80s or 90s science fiction fan knows that the real event is what's going on at the Olympics. That's more science fictional than the Mars landing. Let me explain why. I had this conversation um, last week. I had, had lunch with, with China, who was in town, because he's going to be doing some things for my university this yeah. month. And he's sitting out the Olympics. He's not interested in the Olympics. He's pretty much making sure he's not in London right now. And so we got into an argument. Well, not an argument, but a discussion. Mm -hmm. And... My point was the most science fictional thing I've seen on television is not the Mars landing. It's the fact that the, the, the grand historic courtyard of the horse guards has been turned into a beach volleyball arena. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't J.G. Ballard love that? Well, well he that, would. I mean, you think he uh, wish he'd thought of that? Well, the two things that J.G. Ballard presumably would love are, first of all, that the one of the American women beach volleyball players had to take a medical timeout to warm her feet because it was so cold when they're playing beach volleyball. Mm -hmm. And and I reckon that, see when you said science fiction, I ne that one never occurred to me. The other one that got me, it had to be the South African men's four hundred meters runner who is a double amputee w and has yeah. carbon blades for to, to run on instead of mm -hmm. legs. And apparently it took years of argumentation as to whether that was an unfair advantage or not. Yes. Uh, and they had to do all kinds of stress tests and uh, and various things to find out whether it was. But but that you know so 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 first of all you have um, you have you have this Ballardian invasion of old England by beach volleyball and, and the American I don't know how it's covered in Australia I actually listened to our friends um, on Galactic Suburbia uh, when they were discussing the Olympics and they were complaining about the the gender imbalance of um, of the coverage of the Australian commentators. Mm -hmm. and what what fascinates me is the American commentator. For some reason, no one would have thought of that. But to watch about watch this in the United States, you would think the central event is women's beach volleyball. It's on <laughs> every night. Uh, not not the swimming because they you know, but swimming comes in second. Uh, so the, so there is this sense that the culture has utterly disintegrated. <laughs> and you know, the, the, the the next thing. I mean, Somebody, Sad, yeah. Sadly, you know why women's beach volleyball is the number one Olympic sport on you know, U.S. television then, don't you? Of course I do. And somebody pointed out to me, my friend Stacy pointed out to me, that some of the newspaper coverage uh, of women's volleyball, actually the, the cropping of the photographs actually cuts off their heads so that you just look at the parts that the photographer wanted to focus on. 
Can, can, oh. Well, I have to say, there weren't, there have not been many moments in this Olympics when I've been particularly proud of the of Australia as a team, particularly uh, given the overall poor performance. This is our worst uh, or least successful Olympics in more than twenty years. Mm-hmm. But our women's beach volleyball players got to wear long pants. Oh, I know. Is that a was that a concession on the part of the fact that they're playing beach? This, I, mean, it, I have no idea. I mean, all I know is it used to be at least that the um, uniforms were um, regulated by the, the the governing body for beach volleyball, mm-hmm. I believe, and that it did regulate the maximum amount of apparel and the minimum amount of apparel that someone was allowed to be wearing. So, up certainly up until you know recently, when you saw scantily clad beach volleyball players, it was because that's what the regulations required. Which is just a bit disturbing, really. It is. It's 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 odd, and I, I've never understood how Olympic committees setting up rules like that set them up. But I'm, I'm, I'm I suspect that part of it may have to do with with what they consider to be the visual aspect of it. <laughs> you mean the dirty old men who want to perv on all the sexy young people? Well, that's exactly what they, 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 I, I, I'm not kidding when I say that this this is a sport which. Beach volleyball has emerged as a sport during my lifetime. I knew mm-hmm. in, in South Beach in Miami it became a big thing. It became a big thing on the beach here in Chicago, but it was a really big thing, I guess, in Santa Monica. And now you have it, – it, it's, it's an invention of youth culture. And I'm not questioning how difficult it might be because I have difficulty walking across a beach in that kind of sand, let alone running around and jumping up and down on it. Yeah. Um, but the idea that uh, a sport which is was considered as recently as – 10 or 15 years ago by most of us as, as a fad or something that, um, you know, people do in Santa Monica, both male and female beach volleyball, because it's now is it's, it's ensconced in the most historical, traditional place you could find in London. Why would the organizers <laughs> of the London Olympics decide to put a beach in the horse guards? Because they could. Because they could, of course. <laughs> And because J.G. Ballard was secretly running this well, from behind well, the scenes. Well, actually, no, really... probably disturbingly, Gary, because it was the cheapest place to put it. Mm. For some okay. reason that you and I don't really quite understand, it's probably the cheapest place to put it. So this is a well, science fictional Olympics. I believe it is. I believe we're getting to the first science fictional Olympics. And uh, the, the, there have been two or three science fiction anthologies based on future sports. And I think there's one actually... Uh, one of the Greenberg anthologies that actually dealt with Olympics in the year 3000 or something. It was a collection of future Olympic stories. And most of them were based on rollerball kinds of fantasies about new high-tech sports that have been invented. Um, but it turns out the sports that are being really introduced are, with the exception of the uh, South African runner with prosthetics, they're anything but innovative. I mean, mm. um, they're they're there's there's there are technological advances in archery that's clear yeah um, but beyond that uh, I don't see the Olympics really becoming futuristic at all probably okay. not I mean uh, the, well the only thing is that there'll be more and more I don't want to say frivolous sports but marginal sports or something that are going to be allowed into the Olympics I was surprised he says to put it politely surprised that um, oh uh, golf is going to be a, a, an Olympic sport at the next Olympics hmm. in, in Rio. I thought it's just like I mean, you, you, you talk about um, Olympic sports and what should or shouldn't be Olympic sports, and everybody has their own opinions, which is great. But I look at it, and one thing I do sort of look at it and think is, okay, <clears throat> how do you compare a swimmer who, for the most part, will earn nothing for what they do and are living off not a lot of money uh, with Oh, Serena Williams, who won millions of dollars to play tennis. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I, I ponder the amateur nature nature of Olympic sport when the U.S. men's basketball team probably yeah. earns more money in a year than the entire Australian Olympic team. Oh, I don't doubt that at all. Um, the only slight correction is that. Some swimmers will make a lot of money. We've got uh, Michael Phelps is now oh, sure. set for life. Uh, the, the, the Missy, uh, I, I forget her name, uh, or Gabby Douglas, who's 
it was delightful for me to watch her, who, who won the gold in the all-around gymnastics, the first African-American to do that in what is classically an absolutely white middle-class sport. So there are things that are changing yep. um, that, are, that are probably good about that. But the fact is, you're absolutely right, that most of the people who win gold medals in things like shot put or in things like archery or in things like shooting, um, and I've never quite understood why shooting is an Olympic sport, but it is, those people are going to be forgotten when this week is over. And they're yeah. not going to have endorsements. They're not going to be in, on cereal boxes. They're not going to be doing TV commercials. Um, they're just going to kind of disappear. So so that's true. That, but the thing is, those people are amateurs mainly because those sports aren't remunerative at all. Well, that's true. I mean, I, I, even, though, even though that's funny, because I was going to say, that one of the least remunerative sports, though, has probably led to the vastest, one of the, one of the greatest amounts of remuneration for anybody. This is a long way from science fiction, Gary. Um, well. <laughs> and that would be the men's 100 meters final. You know, because one of the best paid athletes at the Games is the Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt. Mm-hmm. And running the 100 meters otherwise doesn't make you a lot of money, but that guy makes a lot of money. Well, if you're absolutely the best person in the world at something, you can make a lot of money. Yeah, well, actually, but, I, I saw this program, and they are talking about how the fact that um, they made how much? So they're saying when he won the, won the Olympic gold in Beijing, one and a half mm. billion people watched him do it. That's why he's wealthy, because that kind of attention is pure gold. And one thing I do like about the Olympics is even in these days of varied, you know, sort of, you know, professionalism and everything else, the stuff that people pay the most attention to, the real classic um, Olympic events, really remain your base, your basic ones, the, you know, sort of the... Um, 100, men's 100 meters um, sprint, right. uh, the 100 meters freestyle, those sorts of things. So, anyway. But but some of them, again, I, I don't know how, I'd be fascinated to see, and I probably will read somewhere, how, how it gets covered by media in different parts of the world. I'm sure every nation focuses on its own athletes. For example, I think I think the Australian swimmer came in a hundredth of a second behind yes. Phelps in that race. Um, and those people absolutely deserve to be celebrated, but... To me, what I considered the traditional Olympics, when I, when I was a kid, I used to watch the Olympics to see sports I would never see anywhere else. Yes. There were, were things like pole vaulting. I don't the, the track and field, I guess, has just begun today or yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or, or the long jump or the, 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 the things like the shot put absolutely fascinated me because that seems to be the only Olympic sport that really big guys can play. And it's a fascinating sport because it's in some ways so medieval i guess yes. and and you can see this is a sport which probably in some form existed in anglo-saxon britain and probably in, in the i can see the vikings throwing stones at one another um so so that kind of thing makes me think okay there is a a, a thousand year old tradition here uh, yeah. which is which is being recognized but you see less and less and less of that more and more of uh, swimming, especially, uh, w w which is a visual sport. And th this year, again, more than anything else, beach volleyball. I mean, it's just it's, it's the thing. <laughs> but anyway, we've spent too much time We really have. I have to say, I'm going to put a warning up. This is the first 13 minutes of this podcast is us waffling about the Olympics. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, but the Olympics are science fiction. Okay, let me give you a question uh, okay. that came up to me, which I am. You can we can brainstorm. I'm just trying to write this article right now because the Worldcon is here in Chicago in really a couple of weeks at this point, and uh, and because I've got this set coming up from the Library of America, I got a call from a Chicago newspaper. Could you write an article that we could run more or less along with Worldcon? Um, and what we'd like you to write about is why so many people find science fiction hard to get into. Um, now, this is coming from somebody who I do not know, and I'm not, not making any judgments about her um, as at all. She edits a, a literary supplement for the well, Chicago Tribune, I guess I can say that. And she's coming from a position that a lot of my literary friends come from, that science fiction seems to be all over the map. We see a lot of it, but why is it so hard for people to read? So I, I've been writing this article and coming up with the usual excuses. I mean, the, the, the thing that... Uh, it was an essay that Bruce Sterling wrote 10 or 12 years ago. Where he was saying, well, you know, it has a sleazy reputation for its pulp origins. It has, it's, it's commercial. 
uh, a lot of people don't want to read science fiction because they've seen a Transformers movie and they think if it's like that, I'm not going to read it. Um, they maybe don't know when they're reading science fiction. Uh, the number of people who've run, in, uh, run into who have read Flowers for Algernon and then I say it's a science fiction story are stunned. I yeah. say, no, it's not. But that's so, – so the essay is not um, the interesting question. The interesting question was she said, can you come up with a list of recommended novels from the last few years, the last couple of years, that would be good novels for somebody who's had a hard time getting into science fiction to get into it? Yeah. So I started trying to get this list yep. and think, well, I, I, this, this has come up before. We've talked about what we call entry-level science fiction before. Yes. And we've talked about how Heinlein is good entry-level science fiction for most people because he was so brilliant at insinuating his entire world. Um, but we're not talking about Heinlein now. We're talking about novels this year or novels last year that you would recommend to somebody who has said, I just get into science fiction. It doesn't interest me. Also, I guess you're talking about entry for whom? Uh, and by that I mean, are you talking about entry-level science fiction novels for younger readers, which is one thing we, we've talked about a number of times, and that's where you come to books like Planes Runner, which I would have thought somebody in their teens would dive into and love. Um, and then there's, in fact, you know, your academic colleagues who are looking for science fiction they can get into, who are probably looking for something more sophisticated and complex than Planes Runner, which is deliberately a straightforward kind of a story i don't know okay I mean, my, well first of all my, in, my inclination is to uh include a couple of novels like planes runner uh and and possibly um like i don't know maybe uh, the drowned cities or one of pelagic lubies novels because but that, that seems to be cheating because by and large my sense of young adult readers um is that they're much more open to reading anything sure. Okay. In other words, they didn't have any problems with the Hunger Games. They wouldn't have any problems with a really good Western if it came along. They want to read a good story. Yeah, okay. Um, well, a good yeah. story is a dangerous thing to go for. But, okay, let's start with the fact that you probably want to avoid settings that seem frivolous or too alien. Because it, uh, everybody's decided, it would seem, in our, in our culture, that the space in which you can put this kind of things are superhero movies. You know, everyone can go along to a superhero movie and it's the new big dumb action movie sort of of, of of our era. So that, you know, The Avengers is the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie of the 21st century. Um, and so I would think that a big grandstandy science fiction novel isn't going to go over well. And it's also got to be not terribly, not too disorienting. So I'm thinking something like 2312, which everybody within the field will acknowledge is one of the best novels of the year and which is certainly going to be, or almost certainly going to be on Hugo Ballot next year. Probably is not a book I would point your average reader to as a starting point. I think it might be uh, too disorienting. And I think you know, the, the thing to be wary of with science fiction when you're offering it as an entry-level text is that it's either too disorienting itself, something which, which science fiction readers who are experienced value but perhaps your, entry, you know, your, your, your beginning reader won't, Something that's not too straight adventure or, you know, um, directed. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first book that occurred to me was Air by Jeff Ryman. That's which, a good example. It's, which, it's, it's, a, it's going back a little bit further than I would have thought of. Not but, that uh, far. It's only about 2004 or five. Oh, okay. And it is a... Okay, it's, what he, but it's the best example of mundane science fiction. Uh, but right. it's beautifully written. It has strong characters. It has an extrapolated from a contemporary setting backdrop that you could you know, get to very quickly. It does avoid the whole spaceships kind of caper, which, whilst I think there's something to be said for it, um, would nonetheless appeal, particularly to your more serious reader. So if I were, if your sort of university friends came along and said, "What should I read?" I'd be very comfortable re re recommending that. If okay, I, yeah, go ahead. If your go best ahead. if your bestseller reader was coming along, I might op offer them something like *Leviathan's Wake* by James Corey, hmm. because it's a blockbustery, bestsellery kind of book. Um, it's accessible. It doesn't have a lot of uh, complex science fictional concepts in it, but has quite an engaging science fiction setting. You know, mm -hmm. so I could see that being quite well received by people looking more for entertainment and action in their stories. 
So yeah, they're, they're, those are two that occur to me. Okay, I, I, it's funny because I one of the ones which I probably will put on this list is 2312, partly because it's very high profile this year. Um, it does have challenges in it, but uh, the question is, in my mind, it's also very well written. It has oh, yeah. interesting, complex characters in it, and it ha- it's, it's, it's such a celebration of what science fiction can do. And it, it uses a lot of modernist techniques that I'm not necessarily talking just about my university friends, but about the... Uh, the quote-unquote literary establishment, which well, okay, then. you know, all, all of whom live in Manhattan, of course. Allo- allowing, all, that I love 20, allowing that I, I love 2312, right? How many of your non-science fiction readers who pick up 2312 get through the first two chapters? I don't know. That's what I'd like to know. Uh, it was on that basis that I eliminated a couple of novels that I really liked quite a bit. Like? Um, Quantum Thief. Yeah. I wouldn't Once give you that get past, if, you, if you can get past the neologisms and... And one of the things that science fiction has done that may or may not have been a good idea, although it was nobody's idea in particular, is 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 what Heinlein invented: the notion that you don't have info dumps, you don't explain the world you're in, you don't you you, you don't have footnotes defining these uh, bizarre new terms that you're introducing. You simply allow that to come out in context. In some cases, in the case of the Quantum Thief, it may take 50 or 60 pages before you're able to piece that context together. Most mainstream readers don't have patience for that. Yeah. Um, so to some extent, the Heinlein, the classic Heinlein technique, worked fine if you were talking about a future in which there were changes in engineering, uh, in which there were moving sidewalks, for example. Things were pretty instantly understandable. When you're talking about, uh, let's say, a Greg Egan concept where you're completely reinventing the laws of physics and you expect the reader to follow through on how all the physiological and and geological and um, and phys- changes in physics would 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 follow through. Most readers aren't going to have the patience to try to figure that out, and most readers, frankly, are not going to have the background knowledge coming out of the gate as to understand you know what the implications yeah. are of having light travel at vari- variable speeds. I think that's true. So I would not recommend Greg Egan. I probably wouldn't recommend The Quantum Thief, even though it's a no. boy detective versus master criminal story. Once you get into it. But I often wonder with some of these people, would you recommend a boy detective versus master criminal story to them? Is that something that's going to – would it appeal in a mainstream setting? Well, that's the question. And the, the, the real core of this question, which is something I won't be able to get into in a 1,500-word newspaper essay, is um, are those kinds of mainstream values even applicable to science fiction? In other words, should a good science fiction novel, whatever we mean by, whatever we mean by good, look like the best of the mainstream novels, or should it look like um, a good imaginative leap which contains some of the virtues of, of, of best mainstream novels? The one writer I've always thought of, and I've, I've, I've recommended him successfully on a number of occasions, is Robert Charles Wilson. Yeah. Because he eases you in. He may have bizarre concepts, but he always eases you into the novel with what, with what are very accessible characters, very relatable characters, and you know, really very direct and uh, and simple and rather elegant prose. Yeah. And at some at some point the the lid blows off, or, or you know we find out that the Earth is sealed off from the rest of the universe. But by the time you've gotten to that point, you've come to care about these characters, and you're and what he writes about. I think this is one of Wilson's secrets, is he doesn't write about events. He doesn't write about the bizarre imaginative events, which he's very good at concocting. He's very good at writing about believable characters reacting to those events. Yes. And who can do that, I think, can seduce uh, mainstream readers. I think if you go back to John Crowley's science fiction stories, of which uh, I've said before, probably on this podcast, I still think Great Work of Time is one of the great time travel stories. Yep. Uh, and... It's it's great partly because it's it's very complex in the way he's thought out the historical um, implications of it, but it's just gorgeously written. And yes. I can't imagine uh, any literary mainstream reader. And by literary, I don't necessarily mean academics because academics are bizarre in slightly different ways from the way literary readers are bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the, the people who write well enough can bring people in. But part of the problem is that you're trying to write really good prose and you're trying to follow the Heinlein rule of let's not have info dumps. One of the things, by the way, parenthetically, that I do respect Stan Robin for is his uh, campaign against 
the criticism of the info dump. Yeah. He's very defensive of, uh, of the notion of why can't you explain things in a novel? And he's got a very good point. You know, if you've got a mainstream novel, let's say Moby Dick, uh, which is pretty much universally acknowledged as a classic, even though I very seldom come across somebody who's read it on their own recently. Yeah. Dick is one info dump after another. There are chapters after chapters of it's true. It's the sort of thing. It's if if he were if he had submitted Moby Dick to John W. Campbell, he said he would have got a rewrite order. <laughs> I think you're correct. Tell you what else I'm, you ought to might throw at people, though it will probably surprise you. Hmm. Scalzi's red shirts. I th- okay, Scalzi is very good at doing this as well. I'm glad you mentioned him. And I've not read Red Church yet, but by and large, he knows how to uh, bring you into a narrative uh, without alien you, alienating you in the first few chapters. Now, I suspect that uh, people who you know who naturally enjoy literary works won't enjoy Red Shirts, but Red Shirts, I would imagine, would talk to the, a mainstream audience quite well. It's supposed, I've not read the book, but it's supposed to be funny. The idea is accessible and understandable. Everybody's educated with, in all the concepts from watching Star Trek and everything else. So, yeah, I would have thought that potentially would do very, very well with, 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 with your, your broader, more you know, populist audience. I, I, I wonder, and I've not read the book, how do you think Long, The Long Earth would go, the Baxter Pratchett? The Long Earth, uh, that, that would be pretty accessible as well it's uh, i think part of the problem with that is that a it appears to be a young adult book even though it does it's not being marketed that way uh it appears that stephen baxter has done most of the writing on it and he's not always been the strongest writer when it comes to characters um so they're they're, they're it's, it's too soon to tell the series could play out in a very interesting way as a kind of uh frontier as, as, as I think you know, the, the premise behind the series is, is not that different from Planes Runner. There's, there are an infinite series of alternate Earths that can be colonized, but none of them have human civilizations on them. You know, yeah. Humans really didn't evolve on these. So it becomes you know, one frontier after another frontier after another frontier. And it's a series that has infinite potential, but it hasn't gotten far enough into that that I would recommend it to somebody. My other reason, hmm. I have heard this... They don't want to read science fiction or they don't want to read fantasy because they don't want to read something that's coming in an endless series. Uh-huh. Wow. Now, if, see, that, that, that's an interesting point because particularly – well, I, th- I, I tend to feel that particularly fantasy is prone to series. But I was, gonna, I was just going to think – and this actually is relevant because it touches on something that I would consider recommending. Um, it really depends on who you're recommending for and depending on how much space you have and how many books you're recommending, I might even break them down by reader, you know, type of reader. Because there's a reader for whom I would recommend the Vorkosigan series by Miles, uh, by Lost Master Bouchard. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's a series, but it's a, I forget whether it's a serial or whatever. Basically, they're pretty much standalone novels. So I've read the new one this year, Captain Vor Patrol's Alliance, which is, ter- is terrific fun and stands alone very nicely. Um, and it doesn't have that sort of endless series problem, even though there are many, many volumes to it. You know, you don't have to sort of, I mean, what, what, the kind of thing I would, I would expect people to be wary of would be actually things like A Song of Ice and Fire. Just simply because it's like seven novels, it's, well, it's seven volumes of a million pages each. Exactly. Covering one story. So you have well, to read the whole darn thing. Right. And, and it, it's, a, it's a huge story arc. And I think one of, one of the reasons that people are skeptical of series, and I'm skeptical of series, is that there are series that are clearly describing a particular arc. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lord of the Rings is one narrative arc. The Book of the New Sun is one narrative arc. Um, the Chronicles of Amber, I was reviewing a proposal about a, a book on Zelazny, and Chronicles of Amber was a very important fantasy series at mm-hmm. the time. Um, I thought one of the things that was appealing about it then and is still appealing about it now is that I think it eventually ran to ten volumes, but they were you know, reasonably short novels, all of them. Yeah. Uh, but what happened with that series is the same thing that happens with mystery writers. It's the same thing that happens with um, some science fiction writers, which is that there came that it came to a point where Zelazny just was kiting the series. He had right. an arc, his characters. He had, 
And he told our friend Charles Brown once that uh, by the time he was up to the seventh or eighth Amber novel that he knew how to do it. And when he decided he wanted a new swimming pool in his house, he'd write another Amber novel. Yeah. Uh, and he wrote some serious novels later in his career, but by and large, it became a kind of um, habit. It's something he knew how to do. And you don't want to get into a series like that where you think that it's, it's a really good series up to a point, but then it becomes essentially an annual source of income for the writer. This is what happened to Robert Parker's Spencer novels. After well, I was going to say, I mean, we sit here talking about uh, science fiction being or fantasy being prone to series, but really there's nothing particularly unique about that with a lot of uh, the fiction that grew out of pulp, you know, out of the pulp magazines, particularly mysteries where it turns out everything's a series. Yeah. So, so why is it why is it a, a failing for science fiction to produce series, but it's a plus for mysteries too? I think it's a failing for mysteries too as well, depending on the mysteries. Yeah. Uh, uh, Parker's, I, I, I've not been keeping up with mysteries, but the two people I uh, kept up with for a while were Parker and Sue Grafton. And Parker, who I actually knew and was kind of friends with for a while, we were on a radio show together once a year when he was in Chicago, um, clearly had lost interest in the Spencer series. And he yeah. was clearly uh, trying to get contracts that would allow him to publish mainstream novels, that would allow him to publish his story. And the, the mainstream novels, by and large, flopped. They would write a romance novel. They wrote a romance novel called Love and Glory, for example. So he was in this p position where I'll give you a Spencer novel if you'll let me write this. Yeah. Um, so the Spencer novels became things he would do over practically over a weekend. Uh, there were lots of snappy dialogue between Spencer and Hawk. He paid very little attention to the mystery plots, and they, by the end, weren't very good mysteries. By contrast... Uh, Sue Grafton was fascinated with the idea of being a mystery writer. And even though she did novel after novel with the same character, Kinsey Millhouse, mm -hmm. she Maloney. was writing every time out. Yeah, Kinsey Maloney. No, Kinsey. Was it Maloney? Yeah. Grafton, yeah. I think it was Kinsey Millhouse. Check it out. I'm, I'm confident, Gary. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> Sorry. I, I mean, I read the first bunch of them. Well, I stopped around about E is for Endless or, you know, something like that. Yeah, Kinsey, uh, M-I-L-L-H-O-N-E. Oh, okay. I, I... <laughs> anyway, uh, I guess the point is, okay, to, to circle back to, to your question, I mean, how do you um, provide a, a list of, re of recent recommendations to, to a broad audience? It would be, if I was aiming at the under-18 set, it would be, you know, uh, I, I might recommend Red Shirts. I might recommend the Ian MacDonald, uh, book, you know, books like that. Uh, for your for the your more literary reader, I would recommend Jeff Ryman. Uh, I might recommend Stan Robinson. I love Twenty Three Twelve. I wonder if that's what I'd recommend, or whether I might offer uh, recommend Forty Signs of Rain as being more accessible. Uh, mm -hmm. though, though I think Twenty Three Twelve is a more successful book. See, what I, I, I don't want to get into recommending books that are uh, less science fictional. There's a, there's a tendency among mainstream readers, among some mainstream readers, some are very, to value a book to the extent that it doesn't look like science fiction. Um, I mean, when you have a novel, the Washington Trilogy, the... Um, yeah, yeah, the Science of the Capital, yeah. The, the, the Capital uh, Trilogy is, they're, they're very effective for it. They're not his best work. Um, and... They are appealing in the sense that they take a contemporary issue and treat it the way, in some ways, a mainstream writer might treat it. Yeah. So he spends a lot of time on family issues. Actually, I think the family issues are some of the strongest parts of it. Sure, sure. But he also introduces some fairly bizarre, unbelievable characters and uh, and ends up with a lot of special effects sure. that seem a little bit oversold. Can we interrogate this question from a different angle? Mm -hmm. Let me throw a couple of book titles at you and you tell me if you would recommend it and if you wouldn't why okay as, as, as directly as you can without thinking about it too much would you recommend Dancing with Bears by Michael Swanwick no why not um it, I, I think it's an interesting entertaining novel I think to some extent that uh, Swanwick is writing for writers with some sophistication in the genre, and I think some of the some of the jokes inside that um, might not entirely work. I mean, it's 
it, it doesn't seem to me like a science fiction novel. It seems to me like a surrealist novel in a way. Is it too weird? I think it's too weird. That's a good okay. way to put it. Okay, fair enough. Would you recommend In the Mouth of the Whale by Paul McCauley? No. Why? Too much hard science fiction in the sense of assuming uh, what to a science fiction reader might seem a very basic knowledge of the solar system and its planets and its planetary satellites and um, a possible evolution of future politics between inner and outer planets. There's a lot of science fictional um, background implicit in the novel. It's very good. I, I, I think that entire uh, series of quiet war stories is, is very strong. Uh, but I think that's the sort of thing which I would not recommend to somebody as their first science fiction novel, but if you read science fiction, you begin to get into it, this is one of the ones you need to check out. Okay. Would you recommend Blue Remembered Earth by Al Reynolds? Um, well, again, we're at the beginning of a series there. Yeah, um, but only three books, and it is the first one. But, uh, well, the first one, the, the reason I hesitate, I think I probably would. Okay, good. Uh, I think I probably would because it has a very interesting family dynamic going on. It, it works very much as a mainstream novel at that level. It's more or less confined to things in the solar system we can understand. It has a nice mystery at the center of it. It has a lot of very accessible things in it. The only reason I hesitated at the beginning is because uh, we were talking last week about how science fiction seems to be confining itself to the solar system a lot. And at the end of that novel, there's a hint that we're going to go outside of the solar system and really get bizarre. Mm -hmm. And that bizarreness, if he can take the, if he, if he can bring the readers along with him, that's great. But I think he has a good beginning there, and I think that some some mainstream friends of mine could could appreciate that novel. Okay, so it can't be too weird. It can't be too complex. Uh, it can't be too series looking. Uh, the, the, these are these are some of the, the parameters we're laying down for these rec the set of recommendations. Okay, would you recommend? I don't. I, I'm going to guess you've not read it. Uh, Leviathan's Wake by Corey. Unfortunately, I have not read it. Okay. Some descriptions. Okay. Would you recommend Drowned Cities by Paolo Bacigalupi? Um, I think I would. Okay. Uh, I think I would because that's uh, first of all, it's 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 a very brutal adventure novel, which is very accessible on its own level. But its premise is one that people are even non-science fiction readers are aware that you know there's going to be a post-petroleum environment at some point. There's going to be flooding of the coast at some point. All these things are things that are widely enough known that um, it's not going to challenge people too much. Okay. Would you recommend Embassy Town by China Mievo? I would. Uh, I would with, with a caveat. Uh, Embassy yeah. Town is turned out to be a little bit difficult to get into even for some veteran science fiction readers. Sure. Um, and the issues it raises are, it, it, it's again one of those novels uh, in a weird way, which is like uh, The Quantum Thief, in that the opening chapters may be off-putting to a number of people. Once you get past that, it's an extremely intellectual, provocative novel that deals with you know, issues of language and culture and uh, colonialism and all sorts of things that mainstream readers are interested in. And I think, I think mainstream readers would recognize those if they could get past uh, the beginning. Okay. Uh, and would you recommend something like... Uh Confusion of Princes by Garth Nix. And I, I noticed for the record I am uh, naming a lot of m books by men, but they just happen to be the ones that are in front of me. So, No, I, I don't know that novel, unfortunately. Okay. So I suspect it would be too young for, for a general recommendation. And yeah. I, I'm just trying to – because, see, this is the set of parameters I now see. Not too weird, not too complex, not too series-based, and not too young as, uh, when you're looking for an entry text. Well, let, uh, me, let me make two novels that I probably will put on the list and one writer I would probably put on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the two novels are The Dervish House, and I would include any of the Ian MacDonald yes. novels. Um, and probably uh, the Terry Bisson novel, Any Day Now, which for its first half is virtually a mainstream novel. But it's um, an alternate history, isn't it? It's an alternate history, but okay. you, you're, you're essentially invested in the novel before you realize it's becoming an alternate history. It's, it's, it's one of the most graduated alternate histories I've seen where things begin to change in almost imperceptibly until you end up in what is clearly a science fictional alternate history future. Yeah. Uh, the one writer I think I could, well, there are two writers I would recommend uh, as being extremely good at, uh, at, at writing ingratiating beginnings are Nancy Cress and Connie Willis. Yes. 
I don't think any reader would have any problems with Blackout and All Clear. I think the problems that some science fiction readers had with them had to deal with um, the, the, the length, the amount of detail, and so forth, but not necessarily the historical aspects um, and not necessarily the resolution. Nancy Cress just strikes me as somebody who is extraordinarily uh, skilled at, at writing beginnings of stories and novels. Um, yeah. the, uh, the novel she has, you know, that's, that's currently out there, um, and I'm blanking on the title of it, and it's before the, after, the, after the catastrophe, before the... Yeah, that's something like that. Something it came like out that. from Tachyon. Tachyon. It's, it's, it's not one of her major novels, probably, but it's all of her novels. I would, I would go back to Beggars in Spain, are, are the kind of novels that a mainstream reader could comfortably sink into before they start finding themselves too alienated. As an aside, you wouldn't know what the uh, pseudonym she's writing under is, would you? Um, I did. Because <laughs> she's writing young adult fantasy under a pseudonym. It says so on her website. I know, she told me that, and I've, I've totally forgotten what it okay, is. Okay, fair enough. It's probably not appropriate to trot it out here anyway, but I just thought I'd ask and see if you did, because I'm kind of curious. Because she hasn't had a major novel out in a little while, and that would explain why, is all. It could very well be. Okay. Um, oh, the other, what about... The, other novel, yeah, can, the, the other novel is interesting to discuss in this context, because when you mention Garth, and I, I know Garth is, is writing science fiction, but I, I think of what I've read of his is, is all fantasy, very good fantasy. And then there's this question of novels that sort of, do you recommend them as science fiction novels when there's a substantial fantasy element? And the one I'm thinking of is Who Fears Death, Nadia Korofor's novel, mm-hmm. um, which I think I would put on the list. Yeah, fair enough. I, would, I can see why. You can certainly read that novel, or you could read Karen Lord's um, Redemption in Indigo, uh, as, as being approachable through the dimensions of, of kind of a folktale, of kind of a, uh, there's a mythical dimension to these things. They have the same kind of uh, skill to them, actually, that some of the early Amber novels did in some ways, mm-hmm. uh, that some of the uh, Pattern Master novels of Octavia Butler did. So, so I think I would recommend those because even though there are clearly lots of science fictional elements, and and I know that Nettie is very skilled at combining fantasy tropes with science fiction tropes. Yes, I think uh, I think the readers would be able to accept the fantasy more than science fiction. And by the time the science fiction elements come up, this is a far future, you know. Africa, they might have fewer problems with it. As I was saying that, I thought of another thing, which is interesting. I was asked for this article yeah. to think of science fiction novels I would recommend, um, which I guess gets us out of the whole question of the Song of Ice and Fire. But it does seem that fantasy is now even very good, very complex, very epic-scaled fantasy, and then George Martin is writing as good a fantasy as anybody could, a fantasy series as anybody could be doing right now. Those generally seem more accessible, um, yeah, than than science fiction novels do to general readers. I, I will say it seems as though the epic fantasy ideas have now permeated culture as well enough that I mean, particularly th- maybe through the auspices of Lord of the Rings and everything else, but nonetheless, I mean, for Game of Thrones to be a success through HBO suggests that there is a broad audience. I mean, there's always been a broad audience, but there's a, a mainstream crossover. What's interesting as well, and this is part of the discussion that was being had by Stephen Erickson in the New York Review of Science Fiction about the kind of stuff that critics don't talk about, is I was thinking about if, you know, other books that I would recommend in your article kind of a thing, if I was recommending fantasy, would I recommend A Song of Ice and Fire or would I recommend Some Kind of Fairy Tale by Graham Joyce? And see, I could see recommending Some Kind of Fairy Tale to anybody. Oh, I would, yeah. Uh, much more readily than I would feel recommending an epic fantasy series, perhaps. I think that's true. I think uh, I've got some uh, very good friends, um, one of whom is uh, a well-known writer and one of whom is his wife. And uh, he ate up A Song of Ice and Fire. She is absolutely in love with Graham Joyce's novels. And mm-hmm. she it doesn't bother her at all that there are fantasy elements introduced in them. They're just terrific novels. That are gorgeously written. They deal with they deal very insightfully with characters, with family relationships, with a lot of com- complex relationships, and uh, some kind of fairy tale. I think the same thing is true with John Crowley. Uh, there there are writers who are just you know writing uh, novels that are mainstream novels by any other standard, except for the fact that at some point they introduce some fantastic element. Yeah. I think there's another factor at work here. Okay. I think that any kind of fantasy, any any kind of epic fantasy. Uh, may go on for volumes, but it sets up its own rules. It creates its own world, and it doesn't make any assumptions 
of prior knowledge on the part of the reader. Um, even when you mention something like Paul Macaulay. Um, from a science fiction point of view, from a science fiction reader's point of view, what, what Macaulay expects you to know when you read those novels is unexceptional. Yeah. Uh, you're supposed to understand some basic things about astronomy and physics and geology and so forth and so on. But you are expected to understand those. A fantasy novel, a fantasy series, a fantasy world can't make those assumptions. You're in a world in which, the wor by and large, you assume the laws of physics are the same as they are here. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, uh, you don't need to know any history. You don't need to know any science. You don't need to know any technology. You don't need to know any astronomy. Everything is invented. Everything is given to you in the novel. Um, and therefore, I think that generally fantasy has probably always been more accessible than science fiction. Fair enough. I can see that. How much of what we recommend when we're asked these questions is hiding guilty pleasures and trying not to be embarrassed by the more garish elements of what's, what, what, what we do? Well, you, you mentioned – okay, one of the things that I was pointing out uh, that I will be pointing out when I finish this essay – is that there are people who uh, there are people who are just literary snobs that don't think science fiction yeah. and fantasy are written very well. There, the, the other question you brought this up earlier. There's the bestseller reader. There are the people who like to read uh, Robert Ludlum novels and they like to read James Patterson novels and that sort of thing. And what do they? What would you recommend to them? Well, the first thing I would say to them is a, a lot of what they've read is science fiction and they just, they just don't know it. Yeah, sure. A lot of Michael Crichton readers were completely unaware that almost all of his major novels were science fiction novels. Yes, or anti-science so, fiction novels, really, but still. Novels. Ideologically, they were certainly anti-science novels. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, re resurrecting dinosaurs and having nanobots yeah. escape the laboratory and having monsters in the seafloor and all that sort of thing. It's, it's not only science fiction, it's pulp science fiction rewritten as a thriller. Yeah. Uh, so what I recommend for people who like things like that, um, probably stuff I'm not reading, probably things like Robopocalypse. Mm -hmm. Or the, there's a second novel by uh, the author of uh, Robopocalypse, which I can't remember the title of at the moment. Yeah, Daniel Olson, is it? Is that the guy's, the guy's name? Something like that? It's something like that. I mean, I wonder if somebody is going to do something science fictional, which is parallel to um, Cronin's The Passage, let's say. Yeah. Or parallel to Glenn Duncan's The Last Werewolf. Um, in other words... You can take we've we now found out that you can you can take um, the the, the horriest cliches you can yep. you can take the zombie novel you can take the werewolf novel you can take the vampire novel and produce a bestseller which somehow appeals to uh, a, a chunk of literary readers and a chunk of bestseller readers at the same time. What's interesting to me is that even though we've seen this with zombies and werewolves and vampires now, has anybody done anything? with a science fiction concept like that anytime in the last 20 years. Not that I know of. I mean, maybe I should know, but there's nothing that comes to mind when you ask the question, that's for sure. Well, that's I, an intriguing I, idea. I've given up doing this, but I, I used to I used to kind of obsessively go over the New York Times bestseller list uh, to see if there were any science fiction titles on it at all. And there was a period not too many decades ago um, when... Heinlein would show up in his late novels. Asimov's, you know, late novels were his Robot and Foundation, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. uh, would show up, uh, and they were anomalies in the sense that they were older writers late in their career writing novels that were being bought by generations of people who had loved their fiction before. So I, I don't know if there's anybody like that, but do we have a mainstream writer like a Justin Cronin wanting to do that sort of thing with science fiction? Um, and I can't think of any, and I, I think, again, the reason I can't think of any is that um, those are all single-concept novels. Okay, real apocalypse, uh, you know, uh, yes. zombie apocalypse, uh, plagues, diseases, environmental disaster. Bestsellers tend to s deal with one idea at a time. Yes. And science writers are very discontent with the idea of being confined to one idea at a time. I think that's true. You look at Paolo Bacigalupi, for example, and you even look at the drowned cities in the um, um, Lined Up Girl and his stories, and um, the well, the prequel to Brown, the Drowned Cities. There, yeah, there are single ideas in them which make the novels approachable. But if you dig down a little bit, he's not just talking about a post-petroleum economy. He's talking about an agribusiness economy. He's talking about an economy that involves 
uh, wind-up technology. He's talking about uh, bioengineering of uh, these megadonts that he has. There, there are dozens of ideas that give that novel a richness, which absolutely fascinates those of us who are science fiction readers, and at the same time might utterly confuse uh, a mainstream bestseller reader who might be thinking, not consciously, but might be thinking, hey, I can deal with the fact that there's no more oil. I can deal with the fact that you've got giant beasts being trained for uh, for tasks, tasks that previously would have been done by uh, by oil-operated machinery. But I, I can deal with um, uh, the kind of sexual politics that he talks about in The Wind-Up Girl. But I don't want to deal with all that at once. Give me one idea and follow it through, and then you'll have a thriller. Yeah. Whereas your science fiction uh, writer and reader would no doubt think, well, any sort of just one of those elements is too little, it, it's too thin, I need more um, extrapolation, I expect the world to change more in that kind of context, give me more, give me more. Right, exactly. And I, and I think science fiction writers habitually think about the future more intelligent than, than that, because uh, if, if you have somebody like, uh, oh, I don't know, a Greg Bear writing about human retroviruses in Darwin's radio, he's going to think through the fact, well, this won't happen until some point in the future, and by that point in the future, these other things probably will have happened, and so you get a complex and fairly complete future world, uh, but those may appear to be distractions to some readers who just want a, a, a mainstream thriller. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't have anything else to add, Gary. What are you going you to... Have you decided what you're going to recommend? No, not really. I just wrote down... Uh, Jeff Ryman's Air and, and, and Leviathan's Week. I don't know. I'm going to try to. I'm actually going to try to confine. <laughs> um, there's another tradition which we see less of, um, which I think is already accessible, uh, that 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 may not be a, n known to some of these people. And, and one of them is William Gibson, who is now in that group of literary writers that people will read. Yeah. And I don't think people would have too much difficulty with with reading Zero History, which is. Like his last, yeah, yeah. essentially a mainstream novel, which points out, you know, the science fiction world that we're worried about is, has been there for some time. Um, the other writer who I think uh, people just don't know about is Kathleen Ann Goonan, who I keep talking about. I've just got her new collection of short stories in the mail. I'm looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. The writer who writes about important ideas in serious ways and, um, as we've talked about before, has not gotten a lot of traction recently in the science fiction world since her nanotech her nanotech series, which ironically enough was a series that seemed meant for science fiction readers. It was bizarre, it was surreal, it was imaginative in all kinds of complex ways. You had these bees pollinating different cities uh, with information and so forth. Um, those novels I would never have recommended to a mainstream reader, but the last couple of novels uh, in wartime and uh, this shared dream seems to me to be very accessible and they deal with issues that uh, most people could easily relate to. Okay, well, let, let me sidetrack for a second as, as we move into the, the latter stages of today's podcast. With Kathy Goonan, why do you think that she doesn't have broader appeal within the field? And in some ways, glancing across my bookshelf as I sit here in my office, uh, the reception to her last couple of books reminds me of the reception to, say, Paul Park's series. You know, uh, some critical acclaim... No broad penetration of the field into in, in sort, of, sort of discussion, at least. And presumably, though, I've got no idea, and I hope it's not the case, not spectacular sales. What is it? So, something isn't firing off that spark that makes it take off and be widely picked up on, and I'm not really quite sure why. Well, I'm not sure either. I, I think that some of this has to, may have to do with historical things. I, it seems to me that the nanotech series, the uh, Queen City Jazz and so forth, mm -hmm. Probably did very well. Was very widely discussed. Was very among the readers that I know of. Uh, was was very fondly thought of. It, it, it got more complex. It may have gone on for one volume longer than it needed to. Um, but I think that did have some uh, impact in the science fiction community. But it had that impact at a time when science fiction readers were really embracing bizarrely different kinds of futures. She had her success with those novels about the same time. Uh, David Marasek was having success with his stories and novels. And when, when David Marasek's first two novels came out, there was the same sense that this is an utterly bizarre and wonderful future. I've never seen anything like it before. And then they kind of faded. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, maybe the mood of science fiction changed away from that. Um, and 
that kind of just what was the Paul McCauley novel the um, oh the really good one uh, about uh, sort of nanotech altered Europe oh um, uh, dang why the, I'm on the title not the quiet was one before that yeah oh. I'm, bad bad us. Bad us. Um, bad us. We're forgetting about this because let me just pull down my copy of it and listen to him. It's got listed in the front. It's really bad. Uh, was it Fairyland? What? Fairyland? Fairyland, yes. That's it. So you had a bunch of novels um, that were just, I thought, enormously uh, liberating uh, imaginative novels about what kinds of really radical changes might happen uh, through nanotech and bioengineering and, and things like that. And then it sort of went away, and, and maybe science fiction entered a more conservative period. It seems to me that it was not long after that we started wanting things that were a little a little tamer in some ways. You know, we wanted to have the solar system novels we've talked about, have the uh, understandable future worlds, future countries, uh, future uh, cultures that yeah. Ian McDonald was talking about in his series. Um, so that could have been part of a moment in time. So I think that, I think that Kathy Goonan's Early novels did have that kind of success. She did after the after that series. She changed her mode of approach and, in some ways, became more realistic, became more identifiable uh, in terms of you know relating to history. And it could be I don't know. It could be that readers wanted more of the same from her. It mm -hmm. could be that readers expected that she was going to be writing more of the same and and didn't read the novels because they thought okay we've we've got her nailed. She's a nanotech lady. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure. I have no idea. Uh, it, it strikes me. It struck me when In Wartime came out with its very clever introduction of this science fictional element. It's a lot more science fictional than people give it credit for. This Habnitz device, um, just very ingenious uh, yeah. and main. But it it may have, it, it may have been too late for what readers were expecting of her, and it may have been uh, a little bit too soon for what seems to be more of a kind of humanist resurgence in science fiction right now. Yeah. Well, it's coming along, but we are just about at the end of our allocated time, Gary. Is there anything else we need to touch on before we segue off into next week, or at least into the distance? Don't think we have any um, more news. I mean, I... No, uh, no. There's no awards. The world fantasy people have been remarkably slack, Gary. I tweeted I was... a week ago about when are we going to get the ballot. I'm going mad. And all I got was a passing comment from somebody saying, oh, look, you're, you're so impatient, you kids these days. I'm going, no, I want the ballot. Well, and we were, I was looking all day because before this, before I thought we should talk about what I'm trying to do for the, the newspaper, I, I was looking all day to see if there was going to be an announcement. And it didn't come. And it didn't come. And I, reason I'm not angry, the reason I'm not, I'm not angry, impatient. I'm not angry. I'm impatient. I'm not angry. Yeah. I'm not angry because... My committee was really, really late. So <laughs> yeah. But it's early August now, Gary. Usually it's out by now, I thought. Wasn't it? It seems to me, I'm, I, have to look, I would have to look in past years to find out when the, when the awards were actually announced. Um, it can be, I've been told by other committees, um, and have some experience with my own committee, it can mean that there's a really vigorous, interesting discussion going on. Oh, look, um, yeah, look, I know. It's just a, sort of, we've, you know, we've hit that. I mean, what, what is the real reason that that's the science fiction field has so many awards? It's not because we've got so many, uh, so much to, to celebrate. It's because we love having the discussion and the debate, or at least people like you and I do. And so you're always going around, where's the next one? Where's the next one? You and I could probably make up another award, come up with a ballot, and announce it before they get around to putting out the World Fantasy Ballot. We could do it by next weekend. Let's do it. If they announce by next weekend, let's just come up with our award. Okay. Now, will we come up with a no list of nominees as well? Um, let's do the award first and the nominees later. Okay. And will it be juried or will it be popular vote amongst our um, readership, listenership? Uh, I'm tempted this... to say you get one vote, you get one vote, and I get one vote. It's our podcast. What's well, our podcast? But see, what I'm tempted to go is, you know, j just just to make it outrageously kind of controversial and interesting. We we could put together because we have the connections, you and I, Gary, like such an a, a, you know, outstandingly qualified uh, jury, right? That people would have to pay attention to the ballot, and then we could let the listenership vote on it. 
That's true. I bet John Clute would do it, wouldn't he? I think we could get. Well, I mean, we could. Hmm. Because I I I put together a, a a group to work on the Crawford Award that includes John and 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 Kelly Link and Ellen Clagis and a lot of other people. Uh, they might be willing to all participate in a way. Now, how many? What would you have to come up with? Would it be like for this year or or last year? Hmm. Last year would be easier. We've already read all of it. Yeah. And would it, would it just be like the best novel, you know, the Cooch Street Best Novel Award or something, or would it be something else? I don't know. I mean, there, 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 you know, there's the Campbell Award. There, there, there are lots of Best Novel Awards. Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. what? I, you know what we could do? We've joked about it, but we could do it. We could have the Award Award. The Best Award? The Best Award Award! Best Award of the Year, yes. Who did the best job this year? Well, uh, was this well, actually <laughs> given that the World Fantasy Ballad isn't out yet? I don't suppose we can say. <laughs> Here's another thought. Um, yeah. Because because I, because I was uh, when I was thinking about the Mars landing, which is now about two hours away. Mm -hmm. uh, for some reason. That's that, assuming they remembered to convert to metric properly, but yeah. Whatever. Uh, or or <laughs> I mean, the whole thing isn't being in Arizona. Um, probably is. Yeah. It probably is. <laughs> but I read a novel by Kenneth F. Gantz when I was a member of the science fiction book club called Not in Solitude. Have you ever heard of it? Mm, no. I didn't expect so. And uh, so I, I was trying to remember what I'd read about it. I, don't, I may have a copy of it somewhere in my storage locker. But it occurred to me that there are lots and lots of discussions, and we've had some on this podcast of, de of undeservedly forgotten science fiction novels. Oh yeah, sure. And yeah, and but what we haven't paid attention to are deservedly forgotten science fiction novels. <laughs> Insufficiently forgotten science fiction novels. I spent weeks reading novels which I now realize were crap. <laughs> yeah. Spent people from doing that. Well, we tried to, re to go through that period in the podcast way back in our history where we were, you know, sort of doing the whole, you don't have to read this kind of uh, recommended thing, you know. Are you saying we now need an actual award for the do not read this in a pink fit kind of situation? Well, possibly. Do we want to do that year by year or do we want to go back and look at classic unreadable novels? Oh, well, see, well, well, well okay, Give me, let, let, let's hypothesize for a second. Let, let's say you look at a book like, say, Ro Robopocalypse. Which looks barely readable, as far as I can tell. Would that be be on your list for most unreadable book of the year? Is this like coming with like the Raspberries or the Razzies or whatever they are from for um, science fiction, though? Well, all I have to go on are books I've started and tried to read, and True. there are fair. And when you're on an awards jury, there are lots of those. The only um, thing that with the only problem with this is you've got to sort of. Look at the difference between the simply banal book and the book that was expected to be terrific that turned out to be lousy. Or the book that gets an enormously high profile uh, amount of attention, like Robopocalypse. Um, because it, it would be very easy and cruel to go through the list of books that I received this year for the Shirley Jackson Awards. Oh, sure. Or the, no, no, no. no. Or yeah. Fantasy, and now I'm reading stuff for the... Uh, uh, tip your word. It would be it, it would be very easy to pick out some first novel from a tiny press or self-published, which is virtually illiterate and easy to make fun of. That's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody who's got a major contract, a major publisher who's getting some attention, and the book is really awful. Yes. Hmm. And I'll have to more think. than a. But I, I, it would be nice to come up with something awesome. Almost well, anything by my. I would fit that. It's true. It's true. I, I guess the challenge remains. Actually, maybe we should leave the challenge simply at this: if they don't come up with a ballot by the next podcast, we will invent our own award. We'll do it. Yes, we'll. Come unless up with we lose own. interest, we absolutely will do it. Unless we lose interest. Mm -hmm. That sound fair? We can do that, or we can simply, if they don't announce the winners, we'll announce who we think the winners should be. <gasps> you mean come up with our own world fantasy award ballot for 2011-12? Hmm, that's a thought. We could do that. Uh, there you Okay. That's even better because then we don't have to do actually anything substantial at all. And that's really playing to our strengths. Um, Things 
substantial are that we're right there. That's exactly. So, so next week, if the World Fantasy Convention doesn't announce the ballot for 2012, we'll announce one. Sounds good. The Cood Street World Fantasy Award ballot. What you should have had on it. And will it just be stuff by us, just to make it easier, or will we actually sort of come up with a reasonably substantive ballot? Are we going to have to work at work at this during the during the week between now and the podcast? Are we? All right, we can do that. Any of our remaining listeners, all three dozen of them, just <laughs> who are currently all, who, who actually stopped listening about oh forty five minutes ago. In fact, probably about eight minutes into that that, that Olympics talk, they gave up. But anyway, yeah, you know it's right. true, right? We should absolutely stop. But if they have, if if anybody out there has things that we should add to our list, please let us know. Yes, absolutely so. Well, on that somewhat desultory note, and with the idea that next next week we will absolutely positively be more controversial and interesting, I think we're done, Gary. And we're done, and we'll be having guests in the next few weeks too, folks. So don't. Yes. And, and don't forget to see. I'm, I don't. I now don't mind saying this so much, since after all. We um the, the voting is closed. Get something in touch on the voting for the Hugo's closed. So somewhere deep in the bowels of Chicago, somebody knows who's won the 2012 Hugo's. Yeah. On behalf of the Cood Street podcast, a Hugo-nominated podcast, we'll talk to you next week. Talk next week. Okay. Good night.